general nerdery. So I took all of last week off, and I was so excited. Oh my god, I'm not going to do anything. It's going to be so amazing. And then I sat in my room, listening to you and Yui record, going, Man, I wish I was doing that. (laughs) So uh, it turns out that one of the things I like is this podcast about liking things. Yay. Which is general nerdery. And that's what we are. We're General Nerdery, a podcast about liking things. Uh, I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. And uh, this And congratulations. Thank you. I have to get permission from CC first, but I really want to put up at least one picture from our wedding because we're dressed as fucking Jedi, and that's amazing. And that's about as General Nerdery as you can get. Yeah, it's amazing. I've seen a picture. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> some pictures. They're so good. There's... Our lightsabers arrived, like, the day after. <laughs> of I was like, course. God damn it, people. <laughs> They're of super good. I love course. them. But also, <laughs> timing. Oh, yeah, how are the lightsabers? Uh, That's the part I didn't ask you about. They're good. They're... I got the heavy-duty ones, as I've mentioned before, mm-hmm. because uh, I know I'm going to hit things with them. And I definitely feel the weight of them. I got they they sent us a free one that's not one of the heavy duty ones, and I'm like, wow, this weighs nothing. Hmm. Okay. But they look super cool, and I have definitely taken them out in the backyard and played with them, but not as much as I want to because you know I keep going out at like night, and right. I have neighbors. Right. And my nights off are the di- or my days off are all the days that everyone else is working. Mm-hmm. Well, not all of the days, but specific days. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I'm out in my backyard swinging my lightsaber, and it like makes the noise when you swing it. And I'm like, oh, crap, it's like 1045 on a Tuesday. And this thing is not quiet. Uh, freaks the hell out of the dog. That's one thing we learned. Okay. Because the dog was like, "What? what is this that you have? And I turned it on. She's like, don't like it. Oh nope. no. Oh no. <laughs> nope, this is not okay. <laughs> like, oh no. Oh, Ginger, poor I'm puppy. sorry. <laughs> oh no. <sighs> oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's, that's great. Fun. Uh, um, what if. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask what have you been ingesting, but I think. Okay, so we're just jumping in. Yeah. Uh, I have. Two things, and both of them are things that I've been really excited to read. So I finally, like this week, got to both of them, and fuck yeah. Okay. The first one I have been mentioning, I think, since like the first episode. It's uh, Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang, and uh, art by, I, I'm guessing on this name, I've never heard it out loud, Gura Hiru. Okay. Uh, it is a comic book... I'm not sure if it's... I don't think it's a direct adaptation. I think it's just like an inspired by the classic radio play Superman Smashes the Client, and it's Superman versus the KKK. In this one, the Clan of the Fiery Cross. Mm. And by by one of my favorite authors in comic books. And as I'm picking it up from Muse, the, the guy there looks at it and goes, Superman Smashes the Clan. The book the 2020 desperately needs. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Yep, it sure fucking is. Uh, it is gorgeous. It is wonderful. It has a whole bunch of history in the back of, like, an essay in the back that's a combination of 
the history of racism in our country and uh, against Asians and black people because in both the radio play and in this, the clan is specifically targeting an Asian family instead of a black family. Mm. Which they did, so, I mean, it's not inaccurate. Right. Uh, and Jin Wen Yang, the fact that he is Asian, uh, Chinese specifically, affects so much of his writing. Mm -hmm. It's just such a part of his character that there was kind of no way it wasn't going to be. Gene uh, Lin Yang is best. He's gotten most credit for American Born Chinese, which won a bunch of awards. And he wrote the Avatar The Last Airbender continuation series, like comic book series, with like approval and working with the creators of the original show for like storyline and stuff. Oh shit, I've read some of those. He's fucking good. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I no, have... I really liked what I read. Okay. Now I know who you're talking about. I have about. never read any of his stuff that I disliked, but this is one of his better works. It, he also has had several Superman runs at this point. His love of the character really shines through, especially as he is a... It's first-generation American when you are the first of your family born in this country, right? Like I think so. I've always so yes, kind of so screwed so that up myself, so... But I, that sounds right to me. His parents were immigrants that moved here. Right. And so, yeah, he'd be so, first generation. Yes. Yeah. Guru Hiru, I actually, like, have picked up a couple of things this week without meaning to all of his, because I picked up uh, The Unbelievable Gwenpool, which is a book that's way better than it has any right to be. Mm. It's Gwenpool is a... When Spider-Gwen was really popular, they're like, we'll do a bunch of, like... Gwen variant covers, and they did a Deadpool variant cover of, or Deadpool Gwen variant cover called Gwenpool. And cosplayers are like, well, that costume's amazing. <laughs> and much like Spider-Gwen took off, and they're like, well, shit, we're gonna do this. And it's the story about a girl named, literally named Gwen, and then her last name is Pool, who comes from basically our universe and ends up in the comic universe, and can get away with a lot of shit because she knows she's in a comic book. Oh, okay. It's kind of fun. Everyone else thinks she's just absolutely insane. Uh, see, I had seen the Gwenpool costume and shit before, but I didn't actually know much about the character, so that you know, answers I a lot. <laughs> I wrote it off at first because I'm not a huge Deadpool fan, mm -hmm. but then she was in a couple of books that I really enjoyed, and I was like, oh shit. And then... I gotta be honest, I'm I'm kind of that bitch. Um, I watched the public freakout of Neckbeards about her. <laughs> and it inspired me to read her book. That's The funny. more people were like, eh, girl Deadpool. And I read it, I'm like, okay, so one, it's not girl Deadpool at all other than the name. And the costume has similarities. And two, this is really charming. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Um, but the actual other thing I was going to put in my What Have You Been Reading, and this book is going to take a little bit of explanation. It is called Amazing Spider-Man Full Circle. Okay. And it is... The story itself is only okay, but the idea of it is fucking brilliant. Marvel took, like, seven of its best writers and seven of its best artists, teamed them up, 
and gave them like, you have five pages to tell a Spider-Man story. You start with, you know, here's the situation. You have to get Spider-Man out of whatever situation he's in Mm -hmm. and then put him into another one. And then the next team will take over from there. And they can only see the the, the connecting point. the connecting directly before them. So if you did part three, you could only read part two. You couldn't read part one. Okay. Uh, and then there were seven of these, and then all the writers got together to finish up a eight, I think it's ten pages each, a part eight where they had to tie everything together and make it work. Interesting. And so every ten pages, it's a new creative team taking Spider-Man out of, or like, one situation and putting him into another with no idea what's been happening more than 10 pages before. Hmm. It's fucking weird. But these creative teams are amazing. Uh, part one is Jonathan Hickman and Chris Boccolo. Ooh. Part two is Gary Dugan and Greg Smallwood. Hmm. Uh, Dugan had a very successful Deadpool run. Part three is Nick Spencer with Mike Allred and Laura Allred. Okay. Uh, Mike Allred created... Um, Madman and has done a bunch of other work. Nick Spencer is currently writing Amazing Spider-Man. He wrote Captain America and the Secret Empire event, but you should still like him anyways because that <laughs> event was really bad. But like, his work tends to be pretty good. I know, I know. Uh, part four is Kelly Thompson with Valerio. Who, that can't be how I pronounce her name. It is S-C-H-I-T-I, and my brain turns it to shitty every time. Yeah, that, that doesn't that's seem right. probably but. wrong, <laughs> but I don't know. Part Kelly Thompson is another very accomplished writer. Part five was Al Ewing and Chris Sprouse and Carl Story. Part six was Chip Zdarsky with Rachel Stott and Triona Farrell. Part seven is Jason Aaron with Cameron Stewart and Nathan Fairbairn. Ooh. Oh, and yeah. So it is a mix of Marvel's top talents and their, like reliable fallback people. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was just like, I need to read a really good Spider-Man story, this is not the one that I would recommend. If I want to read a really ex- interesting experiment in the like concept of the comic book, this is going to be really high up on my list. As an experiment, it's amazing. If I read it without knowing this, I'd be like, what the fuck? Gotcha. So it's it's one of those things you have to kind of go in realizing what it is so you can truly appreciate it. (laughs) Yes, you need to know the background, but there's like Aunt May is turned into a werewolf. There's like old school Nick Fury. Spider-Man is thrown out of an airlock. Um, (laughs) It turns out that there is like a Disneyland world called Ferretland. That is the, like, money source for a major terrorist group. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why I go there every other weekend. Yeah, exactly. I love Fairyland. Uh, the High Evolutionaries in it. There is a version of Spider-Ham that has been, re- or that is, goes through Craven's last hunt, but Craven stays on as Spider-Man. <laughs> so there's an insane pig Craven and it shows him just, like, shoving bacon in his mouth as he, like, attempts to become the spider. Oh, my God, yes. 
the Punisher gets merged with the Ultimate Nullifier, which is the only weapon that can destroy Galactus. Like, it's... There's wow. a buff Howard the Duck with, like, two pistols. Like, it is... When I talk about everything I like that's weird about comic books, this book keeps one-upping them. And one of my favorite parts is they have emails, because, you know, they're all communicating to finish How Do We Do Part 8. And the people who wrote, like, the first two parts are like, what did this book become? <laughs> like, what did you guys do? And they're like, oh, we should just uh, give this to Mark Wade and make him finish it all off instead of us having to worry about it. Like, just like, let's just pass the buck. I'm uh, going to have to read this one of these days. It's... It's great. I can lend it to you. As I said, if you know what it is going in, it's a really fun experiment. If you don't know what it is, it has to be the weirdest fucking thing in the world to read. It it sounds like it, but just like all sorts of amazing at the same time. Yeah. It is a made-for-the-fans kind of thing. Um, yeah. What about you? What have you been reading? Uh, so I've just still been mostly very slowly going through the, uh, Grant Morrison Doom Patrol run, uh, leading right. up to the second season coming out on DC Universe and HBO Max. I... That takes a while. Do not rush yourself on that book. It's so fucking weird. Yeah. Um, I'm not, like, I want to get, f the show comes out in like five days, so I'm kind of bummed that I'm uh, as far behind as I am, but like, I'm. I'm taking it easy and I'm taking it in. I'm enjoying it. Uh, got through like the the painting that ate Paris. Uh, got through like the D Creator stuff, which was a lot of like the first season of the show anyway. It's been a lot of fun. I'm still enjoying going through it. I'm just not. I kind of thought I'd have ripped through it by now, and I just mm -hmm. keep reading, you know, other things, getting ready for other shows. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. Of I definitely am like, oh, I'm not just rip through this oh wait shit i have to stop for a few days to uh do a bunch of other stuff for a while now so i mean it's not like we have to keep what we're doing secret so i've been reading a shit ton of midnighter as well <laughs> yep that's uh pretty much what i'm doing after this like yeah i'm probably gonna do a little bit of that myself um oh man it's gonna be great and i finished this season of supergirl nice how was this season going? It, it It's not it bad. Um, of, of the three that I mainly keep up on these days from the, the Arrowverse with uh, Flash, Legends, and Supergirl, um, I'd say Supergirl's finale was the weakest. I don't know if the entire season was the weakest. It was a decent season overall, but uh, it was the only one of those three that it actually felt like it was rushed the other two actually managed to wrap up pretty nicely but i don't know i mean it was yeah. rushed we all know fucking covid's happening so <laughs> yeah that's the mm. uh supergirl was the one that had the most things change that due to crisis yeah so i i kind of felt for it that it had to be like oh hey i mean we're not super far into the season but like partway through the season let's wildly changed the foundations of this show. Yeah, it was, I mean, they did a, I, I just feel it felt like this ending was a lot weaker than the others, especially since I did finish watching the others very recently. 
It was fine, though. Plus, there was a lot of John Cryer as Lex Luthor, and I love the John Cryer Lex Luthor. So. I did really enjoy that while I was while I was uh, watching Crisis. He was one of my favorite parts. He just... He chews the... He's like the definition of scenery chewing. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Uh, so, it wasn't, like... It wasn't bad. Uh, the Arrowverse has definitely dropped to lower points, but not as exciting as I wanted. Yeah, that's fair. But, yeah, that's that's been about it lately, though. Especially since that's it's good. been a lot of Midnighter this past week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man, I have so much to get through. Uh, I will not get through everything that I'm hoping to get through, like, if we're being honest. Man, I, I skipped one week and my entire brain's like, I forgot how to do this show. It's okay. Uh, any, because any news for us? We got we do have news. Uh, we'll start with... Uh, I'll try once again to go from shitty to good. Okay. Shitty. Denny O'Neill died. <sighs> this one was weird because at first I was like, I thought he was already dead for some reason. And I was mixing him up with someone else. Uh, I was mixing him up with Archie Goodwin. Mm. And then I thought about it and was like, oh, man, I am fucked up about this. Like, for those who don't know, Denny O'Neill is one of the more important creators of comic books without having the, like, I created all of these characters that, say, Stanley or Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko had. Right. There's not like, oh, Denny O'Neill created Green Arrow, but he revolutionized Green Arrow. He was the one that turned Green Arrow into a raging hippie. He's <laughs> the one that teamed Green Arrow up with Green Lantern because both of the books were flagging in sales and created a series where they actually had to deal with real life issues. Um, he's responsible for the very famous... My Ward is a Junkie cover with Speedy oh, shit. shooting up heroin on the front of it, which is hilarious. With the, They picked Speedy for that. Right. Um, <laughs> that series feels really primitive when you read it now, but it is the, the stuff that revolutionized comics, you know, stuff like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and all that could not have existed without that book happening. That was one of the first times that they put not not just real world stuff like Stan Lee was doing of like, oh, God, I'm poor or oh, man, we don't all just perfectly like each other. But like, oh, shit, heroin and racism is a thing. Right. Or are things, multiple things. Um, and then he went on to easily be the most important Batman creator of all time. He upgraded Batman away from the Adam West stylized, like kind of based off the TV look, uh, working with Neil Adams. He created Rachel Ghoul. He created a lot of the best Batman stories. Uh, a lot of the stuff from the seventies and eighties were directly like his influence. And then he was the group editor of all the Batman books during the time of like the nightfall saga where Batman's back is broken and Azrael takes over. Mm, uh, he okay. created Azrael and took and wrote Azrael series afterwards and before he 
was heavily, heavily involved in Batman for like 30 years. He recently had work in the Green Lantern and the Joker 80th anniversary issues and was actually trying to backdoor pilot a new series out of one of those when he died. Oh, okay. Uh, was it was it Denny O'Neill that took over on Daredevil after Frank Miller? Uh, I don't remember if he took over after Frank Miller. He hired Frank Miller. <laughs> um, he did a Iron Man series where the Ironmonger comes from. Ironmonger was the first villain in the first Iron Man movie. Uh, he did a bunch of work for Marvel, which gets overshadowed because, you know, he did all of the fucking Batman stuff and changed DC Comics and turned it into a real company as opposed to a much more little kitty thing than it was in its earlier years. Mm -hmm. Not changed. He kind of modernized it, I should say. That's a little more accurate. He is easily one of the most influential comic book creators ever, but a lot of his stuff comes from being a editor over being a writer and editors don't get the credit they deserve. No. He might have taken over from Frank Miller. I know he did have a run on Daredevil that I know nothing about. <laughs> I am not a... I like Daredevil. I don't follow Daredevil very closely. Right. Um. So, yeah. Goodbye, Denny O'Neill. That's a rough one. You kicked all sorts of ass. We appreciate you. That's true. Uh, so also on the rough side, we mentioned it a little bit last week, but how much do we want to get into JK Rowling? <sighs> JK Rowling is a fucking turf. Uh, what did I haven't listened to last week's episode yet? I'm running a little behind. So we kind of just up today. <laughs> uh, last week was kind of mentioning uh, it was still all kind of happening at the time. <laughs> OK, I guess you could say uh, J.K. Rowling had made uh, her comments uh, sort of making fun of some inclusive language. I can't even remember what it was for at this point. I just remember her being. Uh, they, the, there was some comment about people who menstruate, which was a new way of saying biologically female. I'm trying to figure out the best way to put that myself. Um, and she was being shitty about it and then basically like, oh, I'll support trans people, but they're not women. And shut the fuck up, J.K. Rowling. Um, uh, and so at that point, only her comments had been made uh, since then. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe, Eddie Redmayne, I think more others have come out being like, yeah, we're not behind this. Warner Brothers released maybe one of the stupidest statements they've ever released and didn't really condemn much at all. But uh, So I have all those in front of me if anybody wants to hear them, but we also, like, it's shit, so. <sighs> yeah, I don't really, I know she released her stupid little manifesto called Turf Wars. Like, that was the point. I was like, nope, I think I'm done. I took down... Um, we, we had three different house, like, Hogwarts house banners in this house. All three of them have been taken down. I don't think that is permanent, but I just... 
I don't entirely have the headspace to deal with this right now. And I acknowledge, I acknowledge my privilege of being able to be like, I don't have the headspace and just kind of pushing it out of the way. Um, I'm so disappointed in her. Uh, here, I have you know defended what? I'll, her fingers. Uh, I'll read Daniel Radcliffe's statement because it's pretty good. And at least Harry Potter himself can counter a little bit, I guess. Go ahead. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe wrote, uh, Transgender women are women. Any statement to the contrary erases the identity and dignity of tran transgender people and goes against all advice given by professional healthcare associations who have far more expertise on this subject matter than either Joe or I. It's clear that we need to do more to support transgender and non-binary people, not invalidate their identities, and not cause further harm. To all the people who now feel that their experience of the books has been tarnished or diminished, I am deeply sorry for the pain these comments have caused you. I really hope that you don't entirely lose what was valuable in these stories to you. If these books taught you that love is the strongest force in the universe, capable of overcoming anything, if they taught you that strength is found in diversity, and that dogmatic ideas of pureness lead to the oppression of vulnerable groups, if you believe that a particular character is trans, non-binary, or gender-fluid, or that they are gay or bisexual, if you found anything in these stories that resonated with you and helped you at any time in your life, then that is between you and the book that you read, and it is sacred. And in my opinion, nobody can touch that. It means to you what it means to you, and I hope these comments will not taint that too much. Man, he read her for filth in part of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good job, Daniel. I love him. <laughs> he is, like, possibly the most well-adjusted child star I have ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of them don't make it through too great. Well, end. and there's just so much influence, not influence, but so much pressure on them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, I'm real disappointed. I, I don't blame anyone who this breaks their relationship with Harry Potter. I know Yui was talking about how it's kind of broken theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine that has come into herself and has come out as transgender. I don't know if that's the right terminology. I apologize if it's not. Uh, says that Harry Potter was a major influence in her realizing who she was and giving her that bravery. So I know it's been very painful for her. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think that this will end my relationship with Harry Potter. I just, I have been reading those books since I was 11. Like, always but i am i i am not going to give any new money to jk rowling if i buy any other harry potter stuff in the future it will be used mm -hmm. and i don't blame anyone who has a different relationship to it than i do uh the the one thing i keep thinking about when in a lot of these things where i'm like well i don't know if it'll end my relationship with it and we actually have plans to talk about this in a later episode in a couple of weeks. I have to admit to my own privilege of being able to say that as someone who is not directly affected by pretty much anything anyone says that's shitty. Right. Like, if you're going to say something shitty about white guys, it's usually something that I'm like, well, you have a point there. Yeah. Oh, 
oh, that sucks. But yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> As opposed to like, you know, the, the, there's no one out there denying my existence. Mm-hmm. So I acknowledge that how I take something when someone turns out to be shitty like that is going to be different just because it doesn't affect me directly. Even if I think it's, you know, important to not be that person. Exactly. Yeah, it all just sucks. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yes, that is entirely it. <laughs> um, uh, so we can quick go through this because this is just uh, COVID once again has bumped the dates for a lot of things. And I'm just going to mention it quick because it's all stuff that we've talked about before. Uh, be so the new Christopher Nolan movie Tenet got pushed back, which means Wonder Woman just got pushed back, which led to the matrix getting pushed back and uh king kong versus godzilla being pushed back into matrix's uh previous role so now we're not looking for matrix 4 until 2022 wait does this mean we're not going to have the 2021 day of keanu reeves where all the keanu reeves movies come out on like within a two-day period yeah i think it probably fucked that oh that's kind of disappointing uh, speaking of Keanu, though, we did watch the new Bill and Ted trailer beforehand. Yes, and it made me realize how long it's been since I actually watched a Bill and Ted thing and how little of those I honestly remember. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I know I've seen both of them, but it's it's probably been 20 years. Like, I saw them when I was a kid. Uh, this makes me want to watch them again. Yeah, no, the trailer looks uh, a lot of fun-ish. Uh, it's only a minute and a half trailer. I do kind of really want to see more, especially of the daughters, and especially because one of them's played by Samara Weaving, who has been amazing in everything I've seen her in so far. Yeah, I just need more... I guess more. Like, it is one of those early trailers that they do that they're so little in it that it's hard to have opinions uh yeah yeah uh i will say though that i have a a much different relationship with the bill and ted movies and they have my money already um <laughs> long sh long story short Way back in high school, when we had to do a term paper senior year, mine was on uh, all the time travel inconsistencies brought up in the Bill and Ted movies. <laughs> I'm all for it. Uh, I just, as I said, I don't have a super deep connection to it. And I watched this and I was like, I don't remember that. Wait, I think that's a major plot point of one of the previous movies. Oh, shit. So... I really need to watch those. And then I think I'll be way more excited for this new one. Um, who is that with Keanu Reeves in it? I should know his name and I just don't off the top of my head. Uh, Alex Winters. Alex Winters looked way excited to be doing this movie. Right. Um, he didn't do much in front of the camera after Bill and Ted. I think there was a couple roles, uh, but he Directed, like, some music videos. I think he directed, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers music video. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I know he has at least one movie, if not more, that he's directed, because Danny actually talks it up. 
he's a fan. So cool. Keanu looked like he was having fun. He looked really stiff in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably like a year worth of muscle soreness for all the working out he has to do for the John Wick movies. Yeah, that's at, fair. At his that's age. super fair. <laughs> God. And the Matrix movies. Yeah. He has to fit into all that black leather again. Yeah. Dude. Dude has an insane work ethic. Uh, I've seen some of the behind the stuff, scenes stuff on what he puts himself through to do these movies. And so uh, I would guess that that's it. He is just very sore. <laughs> uh, this one I was almost going to skip, but we were so curious when the news first dropped, especially since the show is going forward. Uh, they've revealed a little bit what they're doing with season two of Batwoman. And Ruby yeah, Rose leaving. I, s- I saw a bit of this, but uh, tell tell us. So they're not gonna kill Kate Kane. Mm-hmm. Thank God that would have been a terrible choice. Which a lot of people were worried about, because barrier gaze is a thing. Yeah. Ugh. And the showrunner, thankfully, is a lesbian and was like, "Yeah, we're not doing that." Thank Lord. Uh, so they're. Currently reportedly going to invent an all-new character that's going to take up the cape and cowl, and a big part of the storyline is going to be what happened to Kate Kane. So my curiosity about this is actually twofold. Having not watched the Batwoman series, so just going in with that. One, isn't the plot of the first season of Batwoman basically... What happened to Bruce Wayne? I haven't watched enough to say for certain on that. I think it's a lot more track... Well, I feel like she finds out that Alice is her sister pretty early in the season. And I know that the episodes that I watched, that was the mystery. Okay, and which... But I didn't get much beyond that yet. Which kind of leads to my second one. But first, like, you know, just Batman disappeared, so Batwoman takes over. And then Batwoman disappears, so Batman takes over. Or Batwoman 2 takes over. Yeah, it, it sounds uh, like it's going to be Batwoman V2 uh, down to still being a lesbian. And then 2, how is that going to work out with... World's Finest next year? No idea. <laughs> oh, that, that I guess brings to number 3 then, because that was not what number 2 was. Is How is this going to work with the big plotline being Alice is Batwoman's sister? Are they going to keep using Alice as, like, the major character and, like, figure out how to deal with that? Or, like, maybe... These are all really good questions, and they're all really good reasons why I'm kind of glad that I'm not in that writer's room. Yeah, they have a job in front of them. Ugh. But now we know more than we did because that was uh, kind of weirdly insane enough as it was. Yeah. Now, do you think they're actually going to invent another character, or do you think they find some way to pull some obscure character, as Arrowverse has done in the past already? Yeah, like uh, Felicity Felicity Smoke. Smoke. Although the Felicity Smoke in the comic versus the Felicity in the show are so different. Yeah, like not even a little bit the same character. Uh, and that was originally just to like, 
hey, let's toss a reference. And then they're like, oh, shit, we really like this character. Let's make her a main cast member. Um, whoops, that was not planned. <laughs> it's, the, it's a little bit to ask for you to think of super deep cuts right off the off the top. But is there anyone that you could think of that could fill the role? Not off the top of my head. There are a few characters that could be a really good Batwoman. I don't know if many of them are lesbians because they're kind of deep cut characters. I do know they provided a name in the like casting information, but that doesn't mean it's the real name. Right. Uh, I mean, that that kind of stuff changes a lot. It sounded like they were going to go for original character. I would love it if they did someone like there was someone that was briefly a member of the Bat family named Onyx, who was a former League of Assassin member or something like that. Mm. And they introduced her with this idea of we'll bring her in and have her be, you know, this cool new character. And then just no other author picked her up. So she just is a fucking beard. Um, what's spoilers name? Stephanie something. Stephanie Brown. Could be kind of fun. She played a Batgirl. I think she could play a Batwoman. Okay. Uh, she is traditionally a romantic interest of Tim Drake, the third Robin. But whatever. Make her a lesbian in this version. That's fine. Yeah. Or make her bisexual in this version. That's also fine. Also, how many people are going to care if you screw with one of Tim Drake's love interests? Yeah. Like, spoiler, as a fan base, she was briefly Robin and briefly Batgirl. Okay. But, like... People don't care too much about the spoiler. Yeah. Like, you gotta be me to care about the spoiler. Like, my kind of weird. Um, so that's that, though. I thought I'd bring it up, because, yeah. wow. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm super curious to see what happens with Batwoman. Uh, I really like Batwoman as a character. I'm a little nervous about the idea of not doing Kate Kane, because Kate Kane is such a strong character. But that's fine. This curiosity with what they're going to do with season two is pushing me a lot further to, like, just take the time to finally finish season one. I was liking it. I just there's not enough hours in the day sometime, especially when yeah. there's other shows that exist like Harley Quinn. It could easily turn a show that was only OK into a pretty good show. I've seen plenty of sci fi where they realized the main character didn't work for whatever reason, largely wrote them out or, you know, the actor quit or whatever mm -hmm. introduced a new character and it brought whole new fucking life to the show. Um, Babylon five is an example of the first season lead was fine. There was nothing wrong with that character, but he wasn't super compelling. And then they brought in a new one. And I mean, Babylon five is not my favorite show, but it just, breath of fresh air mm -hmm. so I am choosing to be optimistic let's put it that way yeah I'm going to be optimistic about it uh, Arrowverse has done pretty good all around for me anyway so mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> we're both fans of this guy he's more the bearer of news although even having stepped away from the lead role he has been super involved with the franchise uh, Bruce Campbell has announced the next Evil Dead movie. Really? I hadn't heard that. Uh, it is going to be called Evil Dead Now. 
going to be written directed by Lee Cronin, who was handpicked by Sam Raimi, which is the same thing that Sam did back with the 2003 remake uh, with Fede Alvarez, which is incredible. Wait, that movie was made in 2003? Oh, no, 2013. My bad. Okay, sorry. No, you're fine. I was just like, how fucking old am I now? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, Um, 2013. Apparently won't have any ties to either of those versions, but if you have Bruce being the one announcing this, and the fact that he had already showed up as an Easter egg in the credits of that one, who knows? Especially with his castmates on uh, Ash Ash vs. Evil Dead pretty recently saying that they think that they might be able to convince him to come back to the role one day. Maybe we just end up with a giant evil dead averse. Well, I know they wanted to do a, an evil dead that mixed that that had Ash meet Ash from the 2013 reboot. Right. Which would have been awesome. And instead they did Ash versus the evil dead, which is also awesome. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people that like it. I haven't seen it, but we know my opinions on horror for the most part. Like, and I was like, is Bruce Campbell in there like, for like two seconds? I'm like, I'll watch that two seconds. Oh, no, he's uh, he's way in it. Ash vs. Evil Dead? Oh, no, the remake. It, the remake. Uh, okay, the remake. Yeah, yeah. I saw the first couple episodes of Ash vs. the Evil Dead, and then it just got lost in the not enough hours in the day kind yeah. of thing you were just talking about. Um, yeah, I can see you not getting on with the remake as much, because it is pretty much straight horror. I've heard nothing but good things about it for what it is. But it is I watched, incredibly bloody. I watched the Evil Dead movies for Bruce Campbell more than I watched them. I mean, that's why I watch. I don't watch them for anything else. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious how much he's actually going to stay out of the franchise, like I said, especially with him being the one to announce Evil Dead now. But uh, more Evil I mean, Dead is on the just way. Wants to, even if he just wants to be the announcer guy, the one that like, hey, we're doing this new thing and like executive producer credit or something, that's fine. Yeah, that's that'll keep the fan base involved. I don't blame him for not wanting to play the same character again. The first one came out in, what, like 1980 or something like that? Yeah, I should know this offhand, but I don't. <laughs> the, the point is, 30 to 40... something like that. Somewhere between 30 to 40 years of the same character. I don't blame him for being like... Oh, Evil Dead, uh, 81. 81, yeah. That's, and then Evil that's Dead 2 is 87. That's what I was thinking. That's, that's a long time to play Ash... I don't know his last name. I almost said Ash Ketchum, which is not correct. Although uh, I would watch that. Oh my god, I would watch that. Ashley Joanna Williams. Joanna, I didn't know that. Alright, fun. Uh, and then the last thing, I forgot to have you see this trailer, um, but it's kind of easy to imagine in your head, even if you haven't seen it already. They announced the Star Wars Squadrons game coming out later I this have year. I have seen this trailer. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I am super excited to get in the cockpit of a TIE fighter and X-Wing all over again. Uh, I really doubt it's coming out for the Switch, so I don't know how or when I'll get to play it. 
but it looked awesome. And as a fan of the Rogue Squadron series as a kid and the X-Wing and TIE Fighter before that, although I, I never owned those, I just played them on my friend's computer once or twice. I bought my first joystick to better place X-Wing, so... And as a fan of the Rogue Squadron books, I have always been a big fan of the kind of Star Wars Top Gun games and books and parts of the franchise. So I'm excited for it. And it it's bringing in an era that we haven't gotten to see as much with uh, the post-Return of the Jedi Disney version of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So... Yay, bring it on. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm in like six different costuming groups on Facebook of different Star Wars ones. And one that I forgot I was in until I watched them have very mixed opinions of this was a Rebel Pilot build costuming group. Oh. And Star Wars costuming groups are insane. We should just get that out there. <laughs> They're like, nope, that fails because that one pocket or that seam or, you know, a button on that pocket is wrong. Fix your shit. Like, they are super crazy detailed. And watching them go back and, like, some of them being like, this is amazing and others being like, this is bullshit. They obviously don't give a crap because, like, the the picture of the rebel squad, like, walking and the pocket's different, and, like, one of them is wearing part of a B-Wing uniform instead of on, like, an X-Wing flight suit. Mm. And, like, watching them lose their shit over this was both amazing and terrifying at the same time. I I can only imagine. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of imagining right now, in my head, I'm being like, yeah, but they're the Rebels, they're cheap. But anyway... Yeah, and that was the, like, really logical of, like, come on, guys, this is the Rebellion. It's never like they've been super organized. Also, calm down. It's one pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, I understand, though. I do understand. There's things that jump out at me sometimes in other properties where I'm like, that's that's not right. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm being judgy, but at the same time, there are certain things that drive me up a wall, so I get it simultaneously. It's I, just get, I get it, but even you me. telling me about it makes me, like, I'm just like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm... Uh, <sighs> I get As it. much as I love the Star Wars costuming groups, I don't think I could really do them, because they're so insanely detail-oriented, and I am not a detail-oriented person. And I'd be like, this is creativity. And they'd be like, that's some bullshit. And be like, okay, we're done here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's fine. I'm going to go make weird leather armor again. Uh... I, I'm going to call that it the for game. the news, though. Yeah. To the game. It looks real exciting. I'm sure it'll be fun. Star Wars gaming has gotten better in the last couple of games. Like, a few of their stuff were kind of iffy. When they first gave it to EA, because they gave it to EA. Right. But a Star Wars piloting game, as long as they put just a little bit of effort into it, will be fun. Yeah. And I just, I love me a TIE Advanced, so let me fly around a TIE Advanced and I'm happy. So that's mm. all I ask. 
Yeah, or a B-Wing. I love B-Wings. Mm, B-Wings. <laughs> <laughs> mm, All right, B-wings. Let's, take, let's take a quick break, and then, unlike the B-Wing, we will talk about something that is fast with fast color. Yay. So, as we've talked about a lot in the show, representation matters, and a, a more diverse group of people need to get brought more into the forefront of nerd shit. Because as much as I love Stanley and Jack Kirby or J.R. Tolkien or whatever other fucking white guy we want to talk about that makes great stuff, I mean, I've got, you know, a hundred comic books just by my bed, mostly created by fucking white guys that are all real good. Uh, we thought it was important especially with everything going on in the world right now to use, you know, what platform we have, no matter how small it is to bring forward creators that might not be as well known. Well, well, it might have a different input than what we see as much. Well, I'm before we get too far down that road, I should point out, we, we should probably point out though, that the writers of this are pretty white. Oh, are they? That's super disappointing. Yeah, I didn't find that out till this morning myself. But we have oh, an fuck. extremely strong uh, black cast. <laughs> yes. Um, wow. Now I feel super awkward and did not do my homework on this, apparently. We're doing the movie Fast Color, which is technically a superhero movie. I Starring don't know any way to describe it other than a superhero movie, but it's not a standard superhero movie. It involves characters with superpowers. So it gets listed as... Yeah, she's super white. Sorry. Um, so it gets listed as a superhero movie, even though the closest it ever comes to it is one character being like, we're not superheroes. It is... I wanted to bring it forward to people's attention because, one, it's just a really fucking good movie. I really enjoyed the entire experience. And two, every review I've read was, why the hell did no one push this movie? Absolutely. Yeah. It came out. It came out two years ago. I did not hear about it until, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And I didn't watch it till this week. Yeah. And it's kind of a weird movie because not a lot happens in it while still being a very strong and enjoyable emotional journey. Agreed. Uh, so as we move forward into talking more about it, we will hit spoilers, though, as I was just telling you off air, like, as far as spoilers go for this movie, because it's more of an emotional journey than anything, there's not, like, any big, like, M. Night Shyamalan secret to keep. Yeah, there's no huge surprising twist. It's just... It's just Let's a, have a good, weird movie. Yeah, and it's an enjoyable journey that you feel a lot for. And I think that's especially... Uh, I mean, I, I think it says something to the quality of this movie that... Uh, I'd say that we're not the target audience for this movie, necessarily. No, I, I very much doubt we are. But it really could have been pushed forward more... And made way more money than it did. 
just by capitalizing on the fact that, I mean, it's a movie about people with superpowers. Like, it, it falls into what's real popular right now. And I guess I just think it deserves more than it got. Um, how how would you describe this movie, just like the basic plot of this movie, in like a couple of sentences? A young woman is on the run from scientists that want to study her from her powers and has to reconnect with her estranged family to um, further herself. <laughs> that's that's very accurate. Uh, the one the way I sold it to people is this is a movie about three generations of black women from the same family who all have superpowers in a world where it hasn't rained in like two decades. Uh, eight years, not quite two decades. Eight years. Oh, wow. I thought that was OK. Which I did not know about the rain part when it was initially sold to me. Like the trailer does not tell you much. And if you haven't seen this movie yet, which is fine, no one fucking has. Pause this episode right now. Go watch the movie trailer and then come back to us. Uh, because it's worth it. Agreed. Uh, my own, I, I will say my own little history with this movie is that it's been on my to watch uh, for the past two years. I thankfully had heard about it because one of my favorite podcasters, Mark Bernardin, uh, talks it up all the time. But I hadn't got around to it yet. Then a couple months ago, you sent me a trailer for it. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, this movie's supposed to be really fucking good. Uh, yeah. And then shit popped off and we're like, you know, let's let's talk about the movie starring three black women. Yeah. For reference, this movie came out in 2018. It was directed by Julia Hart and produced by Jordan Horowitz and two other people. And then Hart and Horowitz also wrote this story. Uh, they are married. And if their names sound familiar, they're the ones that did La La Land a few years ago. Oh, cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, it stars... Oh, God. we You had me pronounce this before we started recording. It's and okay. I have a terrible Montana accident, accent. I got this part. I got this. You got this part. So, this. Uh, we have starring uh, Gugu Mbatha-Ra as Ruth, who's the main character. Uh, you might know Gugu from being uh, Tish Jones, sister of Martha Jones on Doctor Who. Really? Yes. <laughs> huh. I haven't watched those episodes in years, but I was thinking about Martha like 45 minutes before we started recording this, like driving home from work. Anyways, go ahead. Um, I haven't watched it yet. She's also on the super critically acclaimed episode of Black Mirror called San Junipero and is going to be in the upcoming Disney Plus Loki series as well. Oh, cool. Uh, we have uh, Lorraine Toussaint as Bo. Uh, Lorraine. I I probably remember her most personally for being a main main part of the second season of Orange is the New Black. Uh, but She was great. She was my favorite part of this show. Yeah, but she was like Almond Joy way back in Hudson Hawk. Um she was Irene Roberts back in Dangerous Minds, but good shit. She pops up here and there, a lot of TV over the years. Uh, and then 
uh, Lila, Ruth's daughter, is played by uh, Sanaya Sidney. I should know her because she was in American Horror Story Roanoke, and that's kind of right up my alley, except I haven't made it to that season because I fell off American Horror Story pretty early on. <laughs> She's been in some heavy stuff for a kid actor. Yeah, she was also in an episode of the uh, the updated Roots and, and a couple other things. She's been in some heavy stuff for a kid actor. We have Christopher Denham. Uh, he plays Bill. Bill is the scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I knew... He's been in, like, Shutter Island. Uh, I only watched Argo one time, but he was, like, nominated for some awards and shit for Argo. All I remember from Argo is Argo Fuck Yourself myself, but... He was super creepy in this, while being kind of innocent feeling at the same time. It was impressive. Uh, and then David Strathairn as, what's his name? Ellis. Ellis. Um, I liked David Strathairn actually a lot in this. And it was one of those, I was like, I know him from somewhere. And I didn't know where until about five minutes before we recorded when we were looking all of this up. He was in Alphas, which was a sci-fi superhero show from about eight years ago that was not very good, but I certainly watched it. Uh, Mark Bernardin wrote on Alphas. (laughs) (laughs) Just to bring him up one more time. (laughs) Uh, It all comes uh, back around. (laughs) Yeah, it all just ties together. Uh, um, I actually knew him from playing uh, Ira Lowenstein way back in A League of Their Own, because I've seen that movie probably about 50 times, because I love it. So, And he was in the uh, a couple of the Bourne movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, he's been in, like, I think he got nominated for a shit ton of things for playing uh, Edward R. Morrow in Good Night and Good Luck back in 05, and like, he's he's an acclaimed actor, but... What I remember him from is a league of their own. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit! And he's the admiral in the new Godzilla movies. Oh cool. Yeah. I like those. And that's that's pretty much the main cast, right? Like. Yeah, that's. There's a few other characters here and there, but those are the only ones that. Yeah, there's like the gas station attendant. Do anything? Yeah. The basics of this movie, as it's mentioned, and it mentions at the very beginning. It it hasn't rained in eight years. You get little glimpses into what the world has become at that point, which is super dirty, Mm -hmm. for one thing. Understandably, no one can freaking go clean things so dirty. I was super impressed. There's a scene where she's wiping some blood off off her uh, Ruth, that is. And I was really mm-hmm. impressed with how clean she was able to get with how little water she was using. Yeah, it <laughs> the it hasn't rained in eight years part was the part of the movie that it made it really interesting, but it didn't always sell the best because I feel like the world would have changed a lot heavier than they showed it changing. Now with that little access to water. When I've looked up the synopsis for this movie on a couple different sites, I don't know if they're taking this from interviews and it's any more accurate, but it sounds like a lot of this drought is mostly in the American Midwest rather than worldwide. But I don't 
the movie kind of presents that as not being the most accurate read of it. It sounds more in the movie like it's supposed to be worldwide. I didn't pick that up at all, that it was just in the American Midwest. I took that as... It, it it would explain a few things if that was the case, but it was portrayed as the whole world. Right. Um, like I said, I don't know where they're getting that from. It's something I read a couple places, and I'm like, I don't think that's right. But I will say, I have to say, there's one thing that I didn't dig about the very opening of this movie, since we're talking about the narration pointing out like it hasn't rained and shit. I hated that fucking narr- narration. No, you're not a fan of the, like, here's the thing that's happening, let's go? Well, I think if you drop that narration, this movie actually illustrates what's going on really subtly and really beautifully in the first few scenes with, uh, like, the hotel signs specifically mentioning that they have water. Her having to go in and buy some. Uh, her first conversation with Bill when, when he's like, I can barely remember what a good cup of coffee tastes like and even behind them in that scene there's a bunch of posters up on the wall saying like report water wasters yeah that's that's interesting and to me it felt a lot more like a studio note like people aren't gonna understand and i'm like i i think the filmmaker actually did a really really good job of spelling it out but I wonder you have a good point because they don't bother to explain anything else straight up but that one, they're like, bam, no water. Now you are ready for this movie. The The only um, thing I'm wondering about that opening narration is if they felt it was important to include the phrase man's ambitions as being the problem in the world, considering that this story then focuses on three women. Yeah. And I mean, it's the three women that really sell this movie to, to kind of get to the point where we meet all three uh, what Ruth was her name? The mm-hmm. Goo Goo's character is she's a wanderer. She's the opening scene. She's in a hotel and she starts having like a seizure or something like that. And she's shaking impossibly fast, like her hands shaking impossibly fast. And as she's tying herself to the bed, she calls up the owner of the hotel and is like, you need to take cover. Basically like if an earthquake is happening and the whole area around her starts shaking like an earthquake is going down. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's clear that whatever her seizure is, is affecting things on a pretty large scale. I wish they went into her but, seizures just a tiny bit more, though, because it seemed to be affecting things on a large scale. But when you get, like, the police investigating the next day, there's not a ton of damage done. And then even later on, when she gets to Bo's place, one of their early conversations is after it's established that she's still having the seizures is wondering for some reason if uh, Lily's going to be able to feel them. Did you catch because that? It was she's... very quickly thrown away and but it seemed to indicate that the because she the was sh- staying in a barn or like yeah she was staying a little ways away. I thought that part was weird, and maybe they were trying to reference something else, and I caught it out of context, but... It's interesting, because this movie answers no questions. But it's still wonderful. But offers a lot of them. Ruth gets through the the hotel, or gets through the seizure. The next day has a wonderful scene 
where you kind of get a feeling of what the world is like post no water and you meet a man who is too nice who is from the first moment like he's portrayed as extremely nice but you can tell that there's just something wrong with him yeah and it turns out that he is a scientist who is trying to experiment on her and he goes about it in the world like he goes about it in the worst way he calls the cop on her car and then when she like goes out to see her car she sees a cop and he's like oh do you want a lift and clearly knows that she's running from stuff and is being a little too obvious about it and while he's in the car she's in the car with him he's like who do you think called the cops on your car like well, I was going to say, he, I, uh, he did it in the worst way and that he did it in, like, the creepy serial killer predator way. But in some ways, it's also a lot better than her suddenly being, like, brutalized by those police or something. Yes, I'll give you that. But just, he's just like, yes, hello, I am the soft-spoken white guy with, uh, uh, with glasses who is giving a stranger a ride in his car who obviously knows something is wrong. Like, I never trust that character in a movie. You're not supposed to trust that character. And then he's like, oh, but, you know, I know you don't mean want to hurt anyone. I can help. And just, like, starts pulling out a needle. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man. Like, even if you're trying to help, this is... This is a bad sell. <laughs> like, you... <laughs> your approach here is just dog shit. She shoots him. Be, like... Here's some. Did she have that gun with her, or did she get that gun from his car somewhere? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure she had it with her. It was just that she was only down to like those two shots. Mm-hmm. He tries to grab her. She shoots him in the hand, and it impresses me that this weird, quiet, creepy scientist is like, "I'm shot in the hand. I'm still going to try to stab you with this big ass needle." <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure if I got shot in the hand. And then kicked repeatedly in the face. I'd just be done. We would be finished at that point. Everyone go home. But he just keeps, like, Terminator going and, like, ends up following where she's running to through the desert. Because everywhere is a fucking desert at this point. Ruth manages to escape and we get this kind of image of her of she's been living off of what little money she has and mostly off of you know, the kindness of others mm -hmm. and makes her way to a home with a older woman and a child who we really quickly realize the older woman is her mother. And it's immediately obvious that the child is Ruth's kid. Yes. They don't say it immediately, but the moment that she's like, hi, mom, you're like, oh, the little girl's yours. Like it, they just had such a granddaughter, grandmother relationship from very little acting which was very impressive agreed since because we're kind of going through this movie a bit and it's already happened a couple times in this movie one of one of the things that almost kind of bugged me as i was trying to get ready to talk about it is i feel like ruth's seizures are supposed to be a metaphor for something that i am continually missing i get the sense that it has something to do with, like, denial of her powers, denial of who she is, and trauma. Mm -hmm. I think trauma is a major aspect of it, and uh, instead of dealing with the trauma, it's revealed a lot that she just tries to 
push it away. It starts to hurt, um, and she either runs away herself or pushes it away, or a combination. Yeah, I think a major part of it is the the pain that comes with dealing with your trauma, because they talk about part of the reason why Ruth was gone, and why she had left her daughter with her mother was that she was a drunk and she was a drug addict because it stopped the seizures powers and it stopped her seizures. And when she got clean, the trauma came back and the seizures came back and we never quite figure out what happened when she was a kid because they had talked about, God, this is a hard movie to talk about. The basis of the power that all these people have is it looks like they all these women have, and it looks gorgeous, by the way. The special effects are awesome. Mm-hmm. They can break something down and basically to the atoms. Yes, and then reassemble it. Mm-hmm. But, but they can't fix it from there. They can't, like, change it. It's just back to what it was. If something is broken, it stays broken. Mm-hmm. And I got and Ruth's powers are way more powerful than Bo, her mother's powers, or Lila, her daughter's powers. And it you find out that this power has been being passed down this family for generations. We know of at least I think Bo said her great grandmother, so like five or six generations of women at least have had this power. Mm-hmm. And um, the the writing her grand great grandmother leaves behind specifies that it might go back further, but she never got a chance to ask her mother or grandmother. Her mother. Yeah. Who had died pretty early. Yeah. It's weird. And Ruth's is obviously bigger. And a major part of this movie is her trying to get access to her powers again and get understanding of her powers. And one thing, and the reason this movie is called Fast Color is after these people use their powers, they see colors in the skies. Going fast, like a race. And Lila explains it in a really gorgeous and well-acted little scene. This young woman is an extremely capable actor. Uh, I think she's going to kick a lot of ass when she grows up. I hope so. And as I said, the movie continues to be really quiet as it's mostly this woman confronting her trauma and her figuring out a relationship with her mother and kind of having a daughter for the first time, which is where my one critique of this movie comes in of her daughter who was told her mother was dead, accepts her really fast, really fast. Like there's not much of a, like there is one moment later on when she's leaving again, spoilers that she's like, you already left. Like, just go. But before that, this little girl is just like, yeah, okay, you're my mom and you're back. Let's figure out what that means. I, I will say I did run up against that for a second, but then I was just like, you know, they're they're all like passing along supernatural powers anyway. I'm just going to buy that she can supernaturally feel that it's her mother. Yeah, they just have enough shit to deal with. that This is fine. Like, the world is falling apart. Sure. Okay, my mom's alive. Yeah. Um, and it all does happen over the course of a couple of days. So it's entirely possible that her mom or that her daughter just hadn't had time to process those emotions yet. At any point, did you just think to yourself a little bit like, shit, these folks need still suits? Yeah. <laughs> well, I hadn't, but you're right. <laughs> Uh, very dune of it. There's that was the thing. I was like, man, you guys waste a lot of water. 
I mean, they have better water discipline than I do. Well, yes. (laughs) But you have at least two different taps of water in your house. True. Like, for someone who does not have easy access to water, they have terrible water discipline. Yeah, get you that still Um, suit. Urine and feces processed on the thigh pads. Ugh, God, that's gross, but (laughs) clever. Oh, God, Dune. Um... They talk a little bit about something happened to Ruth as a kid and that Bo was scared because Ruth is clearly more powerful than anyone else's. Well, something weird would always happen when she used her powers, and they don't go into much detail on that. We do see a, mm-hmm. uh, we do see something weird happen when she tries to use her powers later with the window breaking. Yeah, and then we see another weird thing later after that she's trying to like meditate and pray and like center herself to use the powers and you see a cloud start to form until her attention gets broken and it just disappears well that's that's part of the interesting part and it's a lot of um ruth as you pointed out uh trying to deal with her own trauma that happens after she has done like the serenity prayer and started to meditate on her sobriety and her power Part of it is her power doesn't just cause strange things. It's unclear if she can actually do the same sort of powers as the other two. Her power seems to be tearing the sky apart. Yeah, it's pretty clear that she... And part of the problem like, is that... they don't say it, but I'm pretty sure she's the one that broke the world. That she's the one that made it so it stopped raining. I, I kind of felt that at first, especially after my first time through. The second time through... I'm not as positive on that, uh, but I don't think it's out of the realm that somebody with powers is the reason. It doesn't quite fit the rest of the messaging going on, but it does, I don't know. I think if we got an exact age on Lila or Lily, I keep calling it, or no, it's Lila. Mm -hmm. Um, It is Lila, you're correct. I think that would help because... I could see the world being broke during the major trauma event between Ruth and Lila. And that's the thing that we haven't mentioned yet, is there keeps being these flashbacks of a broken water pipe and her like di- uh, like bursting out of this water, which feels really viscerally powerful, especially when there, when water is so important and so scarce everywhere else seeing this room being flooded it it feels way strong yeah god that that entire when it all finally plays out you're like oh shit well no wonder she was scared of what's happening to her but it's also like beautiful in context as it comes out the other side Mm -hmm. i will say so where this movie got really strong and like really encouraging and almost kind of weirdly empowering for me is this, even though I'm not the target audience (laughs) is like the, the last third of the movie, which we're already kind of getting into now that she's kind of harnessing her powers a little bit. I had a, especially the second time through, and maybe it's a little bit of, of things from the real world seeping into my watching, but I feel like there's a lot in the back half of this movie of, I guess, like, the youth being the inspiration to affect change in the world and these 
these different levels kind of working up the chain with uh, Lila trying to affect change on a small level just by fixing the truck uh, and kind mm-hmm. of being being the one that is willing to do what is necessary in this time period and not act like we're still in normal times because we're not. Like, I'm not necessarily condoning her stealing, but it got the truck I thought that working. was clever that she... She broke down items into sand, put the sand in her pockets, took it home, and then reassembled it into the items. I thought that was a cool little scene. And then it was Lila that had the big the big idea and the big uh, change of headspace uh, revelation for Ruth as to don't imagine, just remember. And her remembering mm-hmm. is the key to getting through to the other side of her memory where her powers aren't all bad because she still saw her daughter's face at the end. And it's, um, it's and every think, time she starts to remember her daughter's face is when her powers start to work correctly. The symbolism in this movie really takes off in the last third. And I think that was where the movie, as you said, gets really strong. Uh, the symbolism of she has that breakthrough of the trauma because she keeps starting to remember this flood, this almost drowning, this breakthrough from the seizure, and then breaks out of it, stops herself, doesn't let herself feel that emotion. No, she's completely, she's stuck in the middle of that flood where her daughter's still underwater, basically. But when she breaks through it, her powers start to kick in again and it starts to rain around her. And one, just seeing it rain is incredibly powerful because it's this whole movie has been so dry and it's kind of like, it's a very, like she finally gets to cry and the kind of whole world cries with her. It, it, it felt a lot like uh, a major trauma breakthrough and that really kind of like satisfying, empowering feel. And then the the bit that really caught me, and you were saying the youth is the future, but I think it's more powerful than that even, is all of the scientists, all of the, the cops and people chasing after Ruth are all white men. Mm-hmm. And Bo gives this speech after Ruth has made it rain, the world is changing, and Bo is like, you know, I'll work with you, but these women are going to change the world. We are here we are going to change things. You can't really stop us. I felt, and again, it's probably 2020. I mean, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is stronger than it's ever been right now while we're recording this. And more and more women are coming forward about experiences that they've had to suffer. And, you know, we're not going to deal with this anymore. And so a black woman telling white men we're here, we're going to change the world. You can work with us and deal with it or fuck off, basically. Yeah, It wasn't the most subtle symbolism, but it was super strong to me. Well, and it was interesting because that's kind of where I was getting at. It's not just that the youth are the future. It's that we, we have this effect that starts with the youngest, with Lila coming up with these ideas for the change. Um which then gets passed on to Ruth so she can actually start to affect this change within herself. And once she gets beyond affecting it within herself, can start 
pushing forward, she manages to be able to, you know, get Lila, and they have the truck, and they can go forward, and Lila is unfortunately still a kid, so she still needs Ruth uh, to, Mm -hmm. you know, as they go forward past this movie, uh, to sort of operate in the world, and you could almost, I mean, if we're going to draw a metaphor to, or an allegory, or whatever it would be, to, to what's going on in this modern age, it's like, the youth and, like, progressives and stuff are leading the charge and coming up with this change and the ideas and then it's passing these up to the wider voting public and then you have or even beyond just voting just like the wider the wider public at large um and um you have all of that energy going on up to even the older group and like you said you now have Bo who uh, the sort of surrendering her, surrendering herself is weird uh, in this extended metaphor, but the idea is she's sitting there and she's telling them, like, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you what it's been this whole time. Not only do I have the knowledge of my own experience from being the oldest of us three here, but I even have the records of this going way back, and it's time that you listen to me. Well, and I think that's really important because... Bo is part of a group of people who have been hiding this for generations. Um, They talk about her mother kept her hidden so strong, and she tried to keep Ruth from leaving and going farther in the world. And this family has been staying in this same house for generations to stay safe. And her being like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to come forward. And yeah, I'll work with you, but you have to let these people... Uh, and what is it they keep talking about the phrase change the sky? Uh, tear apart the sky. Tear apart the sky. That felt very strongly, you know, change the status quo, shake things up, tear apart the sky, save the world. A review I read of this movie was that its thesis is stronger than the movie itself, or the thesis is more inspirational than the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very accurate because... When I try and just talk about this film, you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, it's not that exciting. But when I talk about the things that it made me feel, I can feel those feelings starting to kick back up already. Yeah. I think this is a very encouraging movie, especially for this time period that we're living in right now. And I say that Mm -hmm. as someone who is not a black woman. (laughs) Yeah. I am someone, as I mentioned earlier... I am someone that anytime we talk about injustice, unless we're talking about being crappy to poor people, it's all theoretical to me. You know, I am a straight white male. I am comfortable in my own body. I am... The world is kind of built for me. But I find it inspiring, the idea of we're working to create a world where the world isn't just built for me. Because it doesn't work anymore. Like... God, we said we weren't going to be political on this show, and I don't think we've ever once done that. As you've pointed out before, we're normally... I mean, this is superheroes, which ties into comic books. We're normally talking about comic books, and most comic books are inherently political. It's always going to seep well, into the show. <laughs> not just that, but I think art is inherently political, and we've been I've been talking about this with people, because the act of creating is an act of expression and getting yourself out there. And so it's an act of understanding other people. 
uh, and the best art makes you see things from other people's point of view. And this one, as we said, we might not be the target audience, but it made me feel things and it made me feel empowered for those people and by those people. Mm-hmm. It did drive me nuts that this movie answers no questions whatsoever, as we discussed. That's fine. We're apparently but, getting a TV series. Yes. Which is produced by Viola Davis. Yeah, uh, Amanda Waller from Suicide played, Squad. That's what I was going to say. She's And she was in a couple of other things. She's a big name. Oh, yeah. No, she is huge. Her uh, her screen and stage appearances has its own Wikipedia page. So Yeah, it is coming out on Amazon Studios, which I don't have Amazon Prime. But I do. But, <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, like I love... I don't like Amazon, but I love that they're doing this. Right. Um, I love that they're going to continue this story. I want to see more. Like I, I mean, I've said it a couple times. I just feel encouraged by this story overall, and it's not often a movie can f- make you feel encouraged. Yeah. One thing that has happened in the last 20 years, and I think it's as the world has gotten... I don't know if darker is the right term, but as we've been confronting injustices in the world more often as a culture, mm-hmm. our fiction has gotten darker with it. You know, the post-apocalypse has become a major aspect of science fiction for the most part. This one starts with the post-apocalypse or like the beginnings of the apocalypse, but ends on a really uplifting note. You know, the apocalypse can be averted. Um, and it's really weird because it's kind of fucked up because Bill even kind of makes that same point in the beginning of the movie for being an evil character. He's on one point where he's like, I remember my grandma talking about, you know, getting under the desks for the bomb. We're still here. You know, it's not so much that Bill is evil. It's that Bill doesn't care. He's creepy and he's entitled because he's trying to save the world. Yeah. He wants to find her because he thinks that he can, that her powers can fix the world and he's not wrong but he goes about it in such a he's entitled he is owed kind of way which again is some really unsubtle symbolism for how people like me <laughs> treat the world a lot if we're honest how majority of the world how the you know people in places of privilege treat the world uh, and once again, just because it, you know, watching, imbibing this stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum, especially with when this movie came out, who knows how much this part was intended, but I already brought up how how important remembering is to the last act of this movie, and coming, us talking about this movie the day after Juneteenth, and thinking yeah. about how how we think about history and how we have to remember there's more to history than what we've normally been taught. Yeah. There's... Ooh. I mean, I, Juneteenth alone is a great example of that. How many people are coming around to learning about the way the end of slavery actually played out. I was only vaguely aware of what Juneteenth was until just recently. And I like to think I'm a, you know, relatively aware person, and I try to be, you know, pretty... Ugh, I'm gonna sound so white. I try to be pretty woke about things. It's okay. 
Nobody likes that but, term, but everyone knows what you mean by it. So it's a good short. <laughs> it's a good shorthand. It's a terrible term, but it's a good shorthand. But it's one of those things that just doesn't come up much. Like you know, oh, Juneteenth is the day that the slaves in Texas learned that they had been freed like two years before. Like it was the day that the last black people who were still slaves found out that they weren't supposed to be slaves anymore. And, but you know, other than that, like two sentence thing, that's about all I had ever heard about Juneteenth until just now. So this movie does a real good job of, you know, let's look at the past, but let's also look at the future and that we can confront the inequities of the past while still having hope for the future, which I think is easy to lose sight of. Also, uh, ties into this very day, but also with the theme of remembering in this movie, and especially of remembering uh, through trauma. Uh, lately for this, I mean, the past few months in general, uh, partially thanks to HBO's The Watchmen, uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre has been back in the zeitgeist a bit. Uh, Trump, of course, is holding his fucking Trump rally tonight. But if you want to look at that through the lens of this movie, then remembering the Tulsa race massacre and the race massacre part is the hard part. But the remembering and the re encouraging part is remembering the strength of the black community, even in those times, to make Black Wall Street in the first place. And the fact mm -hmm. that this is a possibility and it's something that can be worked towards. I feel like this movie was saying, if we want to keep using the metaphor here, that right now we're at the point where all she's remembering is the water. She's remembering drowning. She, you know, she's waking up from having a seizure. She's broken a pipe. Her room is flooding and she can't find her kid, her baby who was sleeping in the bed with her. That's now underwater. And we have to get through this point to get to the point where she saves her daughter and sees her face and breaks the sky. And maybe something that's broken stays broken, but it doesn't mean that they can't make things that still work in its place. Yeah, and that you can't make things that are better. Like, there's a bowl that gets broken, and they can't fix it with their powers. But they can but still use glue. And they fix the bowl, and that bowl now has more meaning to the family than it did before. I think I like this movie even more after having talked about it with you for these past 40 minutes. Yeah, I really <laughs> want to rewatch it. I'm definitely going to rewatch it. And um, damn, I knew that it was powerful, but I'm not always the most reflective of people. Mm -hmm. I take in a whole lot of content and I'm like, yeah, that's great. I should share this. But like, I, I've never been a huge deeper meaning person. And this movie is making me look at deeper meanings of stuff more than I usually do, which I value. I'm just still bugged because I still feel like there's something more to her seizures that I'm I'm missing, but whatever. Yes, there are major <laughs> unanswered things in this movie that bought, uh, that run me up a wall. But if you listeners go out there and watch this movie and have your own answers, you should hit us up about it. And, you know, it's one of those things that I don't always need all the answers for a story. But it'd be fun. It is something... Yeah, it... it I definitely get that. But, like, it is something I think especially us nerds that love genre fiction will get so stuck on the tiny details that you don't always need. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, 
the original Star Wars movies gave us almost no details. They just dropped us right into the middle of a thing. When the new Star Wars movies did that exact same thing, they got a lot of shit for it, because today we're so used to every specific detail being answered because we're a generation that kind of grew up on the internet picking apart every little detail. Yeah. Um, so it's frustrating to not have all the answers, but I think if we're looking in the, like, if we're looking for deeper meaning in these movies, that might also be part of it, that we can still change things without having all of the answers. Yeah. I certainly don't have the answer for this time period. <laughs> I don't have the answers for anything. Anything. I have the answer that this basil mint Seattle hard cider that I'm drinking is really fucking good. That's it. That's all the answers I have today. Yay. That's a good answer, though. It's really good. That's a good yeah, answer. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I mean, I would never drink a drink while I'm recording. <laughs> Whatever. It's one hard cider. I don't feel bad about that. I can't recommend the movie enough. We already told people to go watch it. I don't know how much I could say yeah. about it, how much more I can say about it personally, though. Yeah, no, that's about that's about as far as I can get. Uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about it for three days now. As I said, I'm probably going to watch it again. Good. Probably sit Yui down to watch it, because they're super into movies. And they'll probably be way more nitpicky than I am, because... They're into movies in the same way that when I read a comic book, I can be like, well, that's wrong. Yeah, I <laughs> that's just how I would roll. love to hear what Yui has to say about this movie as well, actually. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. OK, uh, do we have any recommendations for this week? Yes. <laughs> Did you forget about this again? Oh, no, no, no. I remembered about it. I just hadn't decided on anything yet. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll do mine. I thought I had a decision, but I'm, like... I'm going to hold... I had something, I'm not going to lie. I did have something, but I'm going to hold off because it will be better used as, like, homework into one of our other episodes, so... Okay. That we have planned. Well, I'll do mine, and that gives you, like, 45 seconds to figure your shit out. I am going to go with the Ironheart series from Marvel, written by Eve L. Ewing. Ooh, some Riri. Yep, some Riri, uh, what's her, Williams. Ironheart is a character originally created by Brian Michael Bendis, who is probably, like, going to be, he's done a bunch of comics. The thing that's going to go on the, like, tombstone for him is that he created Miles Morales. He decided to do the same thing with Iron Man with the creator of, or with the character of Ironheart, who is a young black woman who created an Iron Man suit in her garage because she's just a prod prodigy genius and became Iron Man for a little while, basically, and then got her own much more unique suit that looks way better. And I had read her in a few things, uh, specifically the champions, and she was OK and I never got that into it. But I've been trying to I've been trying to read more women led books, more women written books and more comics about characters of color and written by people of color because I can talk about how much representation matters, but my bookshelf is still mostly white dudes and there's so much other good stuff. Uh, and I picked up this series and it's so good. It is strong and capable, but it's when you were reading black Panther, it is a book about a black person like that. You know, every aspect of it is 
look at this black person. Being black is a major part of who Riri is, but it's more important that she's this, you know, super genius character dealing with her own traumas. I feel like I'm putting my foot in my mouth, but <laughs> I don't. It's just really good. Uh, and I appreciate that it is a teen superhero book that taps into previous teen superhero books to remain strong. Uh, it uses characters from the New Warriors, which was like the big Marvel teen book of the 90s, mm-hmm. um, and brings in Silhouette, who is a, another strong black woman character who is... Uh, she has to use walkers to stand. She uh, got shot in the spine and is differently abled, disabled. I'm sorry, I don't know terms. I'm overthinking this. <laughs> we get it. I'm so white, you guys. Um, anyways, Ironheart, it, it only has two volumes. I think it only ran for like 12 issues. It's super fucking good. Check it out. All right. Also, I need to check out more Ironheart. I just know the character. I, that's that's basically I got it. You it. can borrow it. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Mine. <laughs> mine's a lot, a lot quicker uh, to explain. And... It's not as on genre or music as I normally recommend, but to keep sort of on the theme of this episode, uh, everybody go like follow and read Michael Harriet's shit on Twitter and Facebook and The Root. He's one of my favorite black columnists right now. Has a lot of super informative shit. I know that you've even shared one of his Twitter threads uh, yes, on social media. Yes, you were telling media. me about him. Um amazing writer amazing shit i will say that he doesn't necessarily write for white people <laughs> so but it's a shit that you can learn from from that perspective you know as we were talking about with this movie not everything has to be oriented towards me or us in as far as you know like written towards dudes or whatever very, I mean, very politically charged, very racially based, which is why I'm bringing it up for being on point for this episode. Um, but I just, I love his shit. It ranges from, like I said, super informative to super deep and thoughtful, but always with a good touch of humor around it. Dude's super fucking funny. Yeah. And really, anytime he actually starts like a Twitter thread, it's worth reading. Like, some of his just, like, one-offs questions and stuff, whatever. But I highly recommend following him on Twitter, because any of his threads are stupid informative, well laid out, um, are often things like just good ways and good information so you can rebut stupid arguments about, like, black kill people causing most crime and all that stuff. Yeah, all the really gross things that people say. Yeah, all the really gross things he has a lot of ammunition for, so. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, Michael Harris, he, I mean, I've, I think I've read 95% of the columns he's put out in the past, like, two years. Definitely been Damn. one of my favorite writers recently. Uh, on the, on the, like, more serious real world side, so. I don't know if I have a single, like, newspaper writer or I guess web-based writer like that, that I read that closely. That's great. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. Michael Harriet. 
And then I'll get back to um, more like fun comics and music yeah. and shit next week. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We got. We're two people from small town Montana that decided that we wanted to help and have no idea the language we need to use to help. So, um. We appreciate you listening to us. And uh, we hope you'll keep listening to us. In order to keep listening to us, please hit subscribe however you're listening right now. That would be super fucking dope. Uh, also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening, or go over onto a different listening method like iTunes and rate and review us, that would be also really cool because the whole world is ran on algorithms these days and it will just increase exposure for us, your generals. Uh, also... If you want to check out our entire back catalog, you can head over to the website, generalnerdcast.com. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, generalnerdrepod at gmail.com. And while you're at the website, if you click the links up at the top, you'll notice we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. You can go through that and check out the other shows on the network. Listen to me get stoned and talk about horror movies with my co-host Danny over on Fried Squirms. Zach, you and Malark... Fucking we talk about war gaming. That's we r- talk about war. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, read a bunch of war manuals and translate it to uh, games. And that is the art of war gaming. There will be more coming. I know that we've said that all year. It's going to happen. We're trying, guys. We're trying so hard. <laughs> but by checking back <laughs> over at the website, that is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com, that will be your best chance. Uh, chance to keep up on everything that's happening across all the shows and seeing what else that we are going to be putting out. Also, search for General Nerdery across the social medias and we should pop up. Yeah. We are... I finally remembered our Facebook exists. I realized that I hadn't updated it in like a month. That's my bad. Uh, I'm going to try to keep more on top of that. (laughs) I'm going to try to be on the Instagram more. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the episode, for some reason in my mind, I always think like that what we're working on has to be a secret. It doesn't. It just helps you guys get more prepared. Like, so next week we're going to be talking about Midnighter. So go read some Midnighter. Like, Oh, it's so good, guys. And I'll probably like, I'll probably post up a stupid picture of like me reading my tablet, reading some Midnighter because it's Instagram and fucking why not? So yeah. What else do we have to do? In the meantime, we really do appreciate you listening to us uh, listen and not listen. Appreciate to us. I'm going to stop talking now. I think that's just what we're at. Uh, (laughs) We love you guys. We're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Dismissed. Dismissed.